Number three, every true Christian perseveres in this way of universal obedience, diligent and earnest service of God, through all the various kinds of trials that he meets with to the end of life. That all true Christians, all who obtain eternal life, do thus persevere in the practice of religion and the service of God, is a doctrine so abundantly taught in the scripture, that particularly to rehearse all the texts which imply it, would be endless. But that, in persevering obedience, which is chiefly insisted on in the Scripture as a special note of the truth of grace, is the continuance of professors in the practice of their duty, and being steadfast in a holy walk through the various trials that they meet with. By trials here I mean those things which a professor meets with in his course that especially render his continuance in duty and faithfulness to God difficult to nature. These things are called in Scripture by the name of trials or temptations, which are words of the same signification. These are of various kinds. There are many things that render continuance in the way of duty difficult by their tendency to cherish and foment, or to stir up and provoke lusts and corruptions. Many things make it hard to continue in the way of duty by their being of an alluring nature and having a tendency to entice persons to sin, or by their tendency to take off restraints and embolden them in iniquity. Other things are trials of the soundness and steadfastness of professors by their tendency to make their duty appear terrible to them, and so to drive them from it, such as the sufferings to which their duty will expose them, pain, ill will, contempt, and reproach, or loss of outward possessions and comforts. If persons after they have made a profession of religion live any considerable time in this world, which is so full of changes and so full of evil, it cannot be otherwise than that they should meet with many trials of their sincerity and steadfastness. And besides, it is God's providential manner to bring trials on his professing friends and servants designedly, that he may manifest them, and may exhibit sufficient matter of conviction of the state in which they are to their own consciences, and oftentimes to the world. This appears by innumerable scriptures. Some are referred to in the margin. True saints may be guilty of some kinds and degrees of backsliding, may be foiled by particular temptations and fall into sin, yea, great sins, but they can never fall away so as to grow weary of religion and the service of God and habitually to dislike and neglect it, either on its own account or on the account of the difficulties that attend it, as is evident by Galatians 6.9, Romans 2.7, Hebrews 10.36, Isaiah 43.22, Malachi 1.13. They can never backslide so as to continue no longer in a way of universal obedience, or so that it shall cease to be their manner to observe all the rules of Christianity and do all duties required, even the most difficult, and in the most difficult circumstances. Solomon Stoddard writes in his way to know sincerity and hypocrisy, quote, One way of sin is exception enough against men's salvation, though their temptations be great. Some persons delight in iniquity. They take pleasure in rudeness and in temperate practices, 
But there be others that do not delight in sin. When they can handsomely avoid it, they do not choose it. Except they be under some great necessity, they will not do it. They are afraid to sin. They think it is dangerous and have some care to avoid it. But sometimes they force themselves to sin. They are reduced to difficulties and cannot tell how well to avoid it. It is a dangerous thing not to do it. If Naaman do not bow himself in the house of Remen, the king will be in a rage with him. Take away his office. It may be take away his life. And so he complies. Second Kings 5.18 So Jeroboam forced himself to set up the calves at Dan and Bethel. He thought that if the people went up to Jerusalem to worship, they would return to Rehoboam and kill him. Therefore he must think of some expedient to deliver himself in this strait. 1 Kings 12.27 and 28 He was driven by appearing necessity to take this wicked course. So the stony ground hearers were willing to retain the profession of the true religion, but the case was such that they thought they could not well do it. Matthew 13.21 When tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. So Achan and Jehotzi had singular opportunities to get in the state. If they live twenty years, they are not like to have such an advantage, and they force themselves to borrow a point and break the law of God. They lay a necessity on a state and liberty in life, but not upon obedience. If a man be willing to serve God in ordinary cases, but excuse himself when there be great difficulties, he is not godly. It is a small matter to serve God when men have no temptation. But Lot was holy in Sodom. Noah was righteous in the old world. Temptations try men, but they do not force men to sin. And grace will establish the heart in a day of temptation. They are blessed to endure temptation, James 1.12. But they are cursed to fall away in a day of temptation, end quote. This is nor can saints ever fall away so as habitually to be more engaged in other things than in the business of religion, or so that it should become their way and manner to serve something else more than God, or so as statedly to cease to serve God, with such earnestness and diligence, is still to be habitually devoted and given up to the business of religion. Unless those words of Christ can fall to the ground, ye cannot serve two masters. And those of the apostle, he that will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And unless a saint can change his God and yet be a true saint, nor can a true saint ever fall away so that ordinarily there shall be no remarkable difference in his walk and behavior since his conversion from what was before. They who are truly converted are new men, new creatures, new not only within but without. They are sanctified throughout in spirit, soul, and body. Old things are passed away, all things are become new. They have new hearts, new eyes, new ears, new tongues, new hands, new feet, i.e., a new conversation and practice. They walk in newness of life and continue to do so to the end of life. And they that fall away shall visibly that they never were risen with Christ. Hence we learn what verdict to pass and giving concerning those men that decay and fall off from the Lord, writes Thomas Shepard. They never had oil in the vessel, never had a dram of grace in the heart. Thus, 1 John 2.19, 
If they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. It seems they were such men, which were so eminent and excellent, as that there were no brands nor marks upon them to give notice to the churches that they were marked out for apostasy, but were only discovered to be unsound by their apostasy. And this was argument good enough, in quote, Shepherd's Parable. And especially when men's opinion of their being converted, and so in a safe estate, is a very cause of their failure, it is a most evident sign of their hypocrisy. Shepherd writes, When a man's rising is the cause of his fall, or seals a man up in his fall, or at least a cause through his corruption, time was a man lived a loose, careless, carnal life by the ministry of some word, or reading of some book, or speaking with some friend. He comes to be convinced of his misery and woeful condition, and sees no good nor grace in himself. He hath been even hitherto deceived. At last he comes to give some light, some taste, some sorrows, some heart to use a means, some comfort and mercy and hope of life. And when it is thus with him, now he falls. He grows full and falls, and this rising is the cause of his fall, his light is darkness and death to him, and grows to a form of knowledge. His rising makes him fall to formality and then to profaneness, and so his tasting satisfies him. His sorrows empty his heart of sorrows for sin, and his sorrows for his falls harden his heart in his falls, and all the means of recovering him harden him. Look as it is in diseases, if the physic and meat turn to be poison, then there is no hope of recovery. A man is sick to death now. The saint's little measure makes him forget what is behind, end quote. And this is the case, whether their falling away be into their former sins, or into some new kind of wickedness, having the corruption of nature only turned into a new channel, instead of being mortified, as when persons that think themselves converted, though they do not return to former profaneness and lewdness, yet from the high opinion they have of their experiences, graces, and privileges, gradually settle more and more in a self-righteous and spiritually proud temper of mind, and in such a manner of behavior and conversation as naturally arises therefrom. When it is thus with men, however far they may seem to be from their former evil practices, this alone is enough to condemn them, and may render their last state far worse than the first. For this seems to be the very case of the Jews of that generation of whom Christ speaks, Matthew twelve forty three to 45 They had been awakened by John the Baptist's preaching and brought to a reformation of their former licentious courses, whereby the unclean spirit was, as it were, turned out, and the house swept and garnished. But being empty of God and of grace full of themselves and exalted in an exceeding high opinion of their own righteousness and eminent holiness, they become habituated to an answerably self-exalting behavior. They change the sins of publicans and harlots for those of the Pharisees, and in the issue had seven devils worse than the first. Thus I have explained what exercise and fruit I mean when I say that gracious affections have their exercise and fruit in Christian practice. The reason why gracious affections have such a tendency and effect appears from many things that have already been observed in the preceding parts of this discourse. 
The reason of it appears particularly from this that gracious affections arise from those operations and influences which are spiritual, and that the inward principle from which they flow is something divine, a communication of God, a participation of the divine nature, Christ living in the heart, the Holy Spirit dwelling there, in union with the faculties of the soul as an internal vital principle, exerting his own proper nature in the exercise of those faculties. This is sufficient to show us why true grace should have much activity, power, and efficacy. No wonder that what is divine is powerful and effectual, for it has omnipotence on its side. If God dwells in the heart and be vitally united to it, he will show that he is a God by the efficacy of his operation. Christ is not in the heart of a saint as in a sepulcher as a dead Savior that does nothing, but as in his temple, one that is alive from the dead. For in the heart where Christ savingly is, there he lives and exerts himself after the power of that endless life that he received at his resurrection. Thus every saint who is the subject of the benefit of Christ's sufferings is made to know the and experience the power of his resurrection. The Spirit of Christ, which is the immediate spring of grace in the heart, is all life, all power, all act. 2 Corinthians 2.4 In demonstration of the Spirit and of power, 1 Thessalonians 1.5 our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians 4.20 The kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Hence, saving affections, though oftentimes they do not make so great a noise and show as others, yet have in them a secret solidity, life, and strength, whereby they take hold of and carry away the heart, leading it into a kind of captivity, Second Corinthians 10.5, gaining a full and steadfast determination of the will for God and holiness. Psalm 110.3 Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. And thus it is that holy affections have a governing power in the course of a man's life. A statue may look very much like a real man and a beautiful man, yea, it may have in its appearance to the eye the resemblance of a very lively, strong, and active man. But yet an inward principle of life and strength is lacking, and therefore it does nothing. It answers a show. False discoveries and affections do not go deep enough to reach and govern the spring of men's actions and practice. The seed in the stony ground had not depthness of earth. The root did not go deep enough to bring forth fruit. But gracious affections go to the very bottom of the heart and take hold of the very inmost springs of life and activity. Herein chiefly appears the power of true godliness and its being effectual in practice. And the efficacy of godliness in this respect is what the Apostle respects when he speaks of the power of godliness, Second Timothy 3.5. For he there is particularly declaring how some professors of religion would notoriously fail in the practice of it. And then the fifth verse observes that in being thus of an unholy practice, they deny the power of godliness, though they have the form of it. 
Indeed, the power of godliness is exerted in the first place within the soul, in the sensible, lively exercise of gracious affections there. Yet the principal evidence of this power is in those exercises of holy affections that are practical, conquering the will, the lusts, the corruptions of men, and carrying them on in the way of holiness through all temptation, difficulty, and opposition. Again, the reason why gracious affections have their exercise and effect in Christian practice appears from this, that the first objective ground of gracious affections is a transcendently excellent and amiable nature of divine things, as they are in themselves, and not any conceived relation they bear to self or self-interest. This shows why holy affections will cause men to be holy in their practice universally. What makes men partial in religion is that they seek themselves and not God in their religion and close with religion, not for its own excellent nature, but only to serve a turn. He that closes with religion only to serve a turn will close with no more of it than he imagines serves that turn. But he that closes with religion for its own excellent and lovely nature closes with all that has that nature. He that embraces religion for its own sake embraces the whole of religion. This also shows why gracious affections will cause men to practice religion perseveringly and at all times. Religion may alter greatly in process of time as to its consistence with men's private interest in many respects. And therefore he that complies with it only from selfish views is liable in the changes of time to forsake it. And the excellent nature of religion as it is in itself is invariable. It is always the same at all times and through all changes. It never alters in any respect. The reason why gracious affections issue in holy practice also further appears from the kind of excellency which is the foundation of all holy affections, their moral excellency or the beauty of their holiness. No wonder, then, a love to holiness for holiness' sake inclines persons to practice holiness and to practice everything that is holy. Seeing holiness is the main thing that excites, draws, and governs all gracious affections, no wonder that all such affections tend to holiness. That which men love they desire to have, to be united to and possessed of. That beauty which men delight in they desire to be adorned with. Those acts which men delight in they necessarily incline to. And what has been observed of divine teaching and leading of the Spirit of God shows a reason of this tendency of gracious affections to an universally holy practice. For as has been observed, the Spirit of God in this his divine teaching and leading gives the soul a natural relish of the sweetness of that which is holy, and of everything that is holy, so far as it comes in view, and excites a disrelish and disgust of everything that is unholy. The same also appears from what has been observed that the nature of that spiritual knowledge which is the foundation of all holy affection is consisting in a sense and view of that excellency in divine things which is supreme and transcendent. For hereby these things appear above all others worthy to be chosen and adhered to, by the sight worthy to be followed, and so are powerfully drawn after him. They see him worthy that they should forsake all for him. By the sight of that superlative amiableness, they are thoroughly disposed to be subject to him, and engaged to labor with earnestness and activity in his service, and made willing to go through all difficulties for his sake. 
and it is the discovery of this divine excellency of Christ that makes them constant to him, for it makes so deep an impression upon their minds that they cannot forget him. They will follow him whithersoever he goes, and it is in vain for any to endeavor to draw them away from him. The reason of this practical tendency and issue of gracious affections further appears from what has been observed of such affections being attended with a thorough conviction of the reality and certainty of divine things. No wonder that they who are never thoroughly convinced that there is any reality in religion will never be at the labor and trouble of such an earnest, universal, and persevering practice of religion through all difficulties, self-denials, and sufferings, and a dependence on that of which they are not convinced. But on the other hand, they who are thoroughly convinced of the certain truth of those things must needs be governed by them in their practice. For the things revealed in the word of God are so great and so infinitely more important than all others that it is inconsistent with human nature that a man should fully believe their truth and not be influenced by them above all things in his practice. Again, the reason of this expression and effect of holy affections in the practice appears from what has been observed of a change of nature accompanying such affections. Without a change of nature, men's practice will not be thoroughly changed. Until the tree be made good, the fruit will not be good. Men do not gather grapes of thorns, nor figs of thistles. The swine may be washed and appear clean for a little while, but yet without a change of nature he will still wallow in the mire. Nature is a more powerful principle of action than anything that opposes it. Though it may violently be restrained for a while, it will finally overcome that which restrains it. It is like the stream of a river. It may be stopped a while with a dam, but if nothing be done to dry the fountain, it will not be stopped always. It will have a course either in its old channel or a new one. Nature is a thing more constant and permanent than any of those things that are the foundation of carnal men's reformation and righteousness. When a natural man denies his lust, lives a strict religious life, and seems humble, painful, and earnest in religion, it is not natural. It is all a force against nature, as when a stone is violently thrown upwards. But that force will be gradually spent. Nature will remain in its full strength, and so prevails again, and the stone returns downwards. As long as corrupt nature is not mortified, but the principle left hold in a man, it is a vain thing to expect that it should not govern. But if the old nature be indeed mortified and a new heavenly nature infused, then may it well be expected that men will walk in newness of life and continue to do so to the end of their days. The reason of this practical exercise and effect of holy affections may also be partly seen from what has been said of that spirit of humility which attends them. Humility is that wherein a spirit of obedience much consists. A proud spirit is rebellious, but a humble spirit is a submissive, obediential spirit. We see among men that the servant who is of a haughty spirit is not apt in everything to be submissive and obedient to the will of his master, but it is otherwise with the servant who is of a lowly spirit. That lamb-like, dove-like spirit that has been spoken of, which accompanies all gracious affections, fulfills, as the Apostle observes, Romans 13, 8, 9, and 10, and Galatians 5, 14. 
all the duties of the second table of the law, wherein Christian practice very much consists in the external practice of Christianity. And the reason why gracious affections are attended with strict, universal, and constant obedience further appears from what has been observed of that tenderness of spirit which accompanies the affections of true saints, causing in them so quickly and lively a sense of pain through the presence of sin and such a dread of the appearance of evil. One great reason why the Christian practice which flows from gracious affections is universal, constant, and persevering appears from what has been observed of those affections themselves, from whence this practice flows, being universal and constant, in all kinds of holy exercise, and towards all objects, in all circumstances, and at all seasons, in a beautiful symmetry and proportion. And much of the reason why holy affections are expressed and manifested in such earnestness, activity, engagedness, and perseverance in holy practice appears from what has been observed, of the spiritual appetite and longing after further attainments in religion, which evermore attends true affection and does not decay, but increases as those affections increase. Thus, we see how the tendency of holy affections to such a Christian practice as has been explained appears from each of those characteristics of holy affection before spoken of. John Preston wrote, To profess to know much is easy, but to bring your affections into subjection, to wrestle with lots, to cross your will and yourselves upon every occasion, this is hard. The Lord looketh that in our lives we should be serviceable to him and useful to men. That which is within, the Lord and our brethren are never the better for it, but the outward obedience, following thence, glorifieth God and does good to men. The Lord will have this done. What else is the end of our planting and watering, but that the trees may be filled with sap? And what is the end of that sap, but that the trees may bring forth fruit? What careth the husbandman for leaves and barren trees? And again, what is the end of every grace but to mollify the heart and make it pliable to some command or other? Look how many commandments, so many graces there are in virtue and efficacy, although not so many, several names are given them. The end of every such grace is to make us obedient, as the end of temperance is chastity, to bow the heart to these commands. Be ye sober, and so on, not in chambering and wantonness, when the Lord commandeth us not to be angry with our brother. The end of meekness and why the Lord infuseth it is to keep us from unadvised rash anger. So faith, the end of it, is to take Jesus Christ to make us obedient to the command of the gospel which commands us to believe in him. So as all graces do join together, but to frame and fashion the soul to obedience, then so much obedience as is in your lies, so much grace in your hearts, and no more. Therefore ask your hearts how subject you are to the Lord in your lives. It was the counsel that Francis Spira gave to them about him, saith he, Learn all of me to take heed of severing faith and obedience. I taught justification by faith, but neglected obedience, and therefore is this befallen me. I have known some godly men whose comfort on their deathbeds has been not from the inward acts of their minds, which apart considered might be subject to misapprehensions, but from the course of obedience in their lives issuing thence. Let Christians look to it. 
that in all their conversation, as they stand in every relation as scholars, tradesmen, husbands, wives, look to this, that when they come to die, they have been subject in all things. This will yield comfort, end quote. Thomas Shepard wrote, No unregenerate man, though he go never so far, let him do never so much, but he lives in some one sin or other, secret or open, little or great. Judas went far, but he was covetous. Herod went far, but he loved his Herodias. Every dog hath his kennel, every swine hath his swill, and every wicked man has his lust. There is never an unsound heart in the world, but as they say of witches, they have some familiar that sucks them, so they have some lust that is beloved of them. Some beloved there is, they have given a promise to never forsake. No man that is married to the law, but his fig leaves cover some nakedness. All his duties ever brood of some lust. There is some one sin or other the man lives in, which either the Lord discovers and he will not part with, as a young man, or else is so spiritual he cannot see all his lifetime. Read through the strictest of all and see this, Matthew 23. Painted Sepulchres Paul that was blameless, yet, Ephesians 2.3 and Titus 3.3, served divers' lusts and pleasures. And the reason is, the law is not the ministration of the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.8.9, which breaks off from every sin. There is no law that can give life, Galatians 3.21, and hence many men have strong resolutions and break all again. Hence men sin and sorrow and pray again, and then go with more ease in their sin. Examine thyself. Is there any living lust with thy righteousness? It is sure it is a righteousness thou art married to, and never were yet married to Christ. Quote Shepherd's parable. No hypocrite, though he closeth with Christ, and for a time grow up in knowledge of and communion with Christ, but he hath at that time hidden lusts and thorns that overgrow his growings, and choke all at last, and in conclusion meditates a league between Christ and his lusts, and seeks to reconcile them together." Their faith is in such a party as never was yet thoroughly rent from sin. And here is a great wound of the most cunning hypocrites living. Let a man be cast down as low as hell with sorrow, and lie under chains, quaking in apprehension of terror to come. Let a man then be raised up to heaven in joy, not able to live. Let a man reform and shine like an earthly angel, yet if not rent from lust that either you did never see it, or if so, you have not followed the Lord to remove it, but proud, dogged, worldly, sluggish still, false in your dealings, cunning in your tradings, devils in your families, images in your churches, you are objects of pity now and shall be a terror at the great day. For where sin remains in power, it will bring faith in Christ and joy into bondage and service of itself." Methinks it is with the best hypocrites as it is with divers old merchants. They prize and desire the gain of merchandise, but to be at the trouble to prepare the ship, to put themselves upon the hazard and dangers of the ship, to go and fetch the treasure that they prize, this they will never do. So many prize and desire earnestly the treasures of heaven, 
but to be at the trouble of a heaven voyage to fetch this treasure, to pass through the valley of Baca, tears, temptations, the power of darkness, the breaches and opposition and contradictions of a sinful, unbelieving heart, good and evil report, to pass from one depth and wave to another, this the best hypocrite fails in, and hence loses all at last. And this I conceive to be one of the great differences between the strong desires and esteems of hypocrites and saints. Look as it is with men that have two trades or two shops. One is, as much as ever they can, follow or tend. They are forced at last to put off one, and they must neglect one, so here. That spirit of sloth and slumber which the Lord ever leaves the best hypocrite to, so mightily oppresseth all the senses, that they cannot use effectually all means to accomplish their ends. And hence a man desires the end, but has it not. Read through all the scripture, constantly. Never any hypocrites, but they had this brand. Matthew 7.23 you workers of iniquity. And John Preston again wrote, A carnal man may hit upon some good duty that God commands, and refrain from some sins that God forbids. But to go through he cannot. To take up reproach and disgrace, to lose his credit, to forsake his friends, to lose honor and riches and pleasures, this he will not do until he be humbled. So it is with men, because they lack humiliation. Therefore their profession, and they do not continue, but part willingly one from another. They will do some things, but not all things, and they will forego some things, but not all things. And therefore our Savior saith, Luke 14, He that will not forsake all for my sake is not worthy of me. He is not worth the saving that prizes not me above all things whatsoever. And a man will not prize Christ nor forsake all things for Christ until he be humbled. The counterfeit and common grace of foolish virgins after some time of glorious profession will certainly go out and be quite spent. It consumes in the using and shining and burning. Men that have been most forward decay. Their gifts decay. Life decays. It is so after some time of profession, for at first it rather grows than decays and withers, but afterward they have enough of it. It withers and dies. The Spirit of God comes upon many hypocrites in abundant and plentiful measure of awakening grace. It comes upon them as it did upon Balaam, and as it is in overflowing waters which spread far and grow very deep and fill many empty places. Though it doth come upon them so, yet it doth never rest within, so as to dwell there, to take up an eternal mansion for himself. Hence it doth decay by little and little, until at last it is quite gone. His ponds filled with rain water, which comes upon them, not spring water, which rises up within them, it dries up by little and little, until quite dry, end quote. Some men may apprehend Christ, neither out of fear of misery, nor only to preserve some sin, but God lets in light and heed of the blessed beams of the glorious gospel of the Son of God, and therefore there is mercy rich, free, for damned, great, vile sinners. Good Lord, saith the soul, what a sweet ministry word, God and gospel, is this, and there rests. 
This was the frame of the stony ground which heard the word and received it with joy, and for a time believed. And this is the case of thousands that are much affected with the promise and mercy of Christ and hang upon free grace for a time. But as it is with sweet smells in a room, they continue not long. Or as flowers, they grow old and withered and then fall. In time of temptation, lust in the world and sloth is more sweet than Christ and all his gospel is. Never any carnal heart but some root of bitterness did grow up at last in this soil. We shall see in experience, take the best professors living, though they may come, as they and others judged, to the Lord and follow the Lord, yet they will in time depart. The Spirit never was given effectually to draw them, nor yet to keep them. Shepherd's Parable as the fruit of Christian practice is evermore found in true saints, according as they have opportunity in trial, so it is found of them only. None but true Christians do live such an obedient life, so universally devoted to their duty and given up to the business of a Christian, as has been explained. All unsanctified men are workers of iniquity. They are of their father, the devil, and the loss of their father they will do. There is no hypocrite that will go through with the business of religion, will both begin and finish the tour. They will not endure the trials God is wont to bring on the professors of religion, but will turn aside to their crooked ways. They will not be thoroughly faithful to Christ in their practice and follow him whithersoever he goes. Whatever lengths they may go in religion in some instances, though they may appear exceeding strict and mightily engaged in the service of God for a season, yet they are the servants of sin. The chains of their old taskmasters are not broken. Their lusts yet have a reigning power in their hearts, and therefore to these masters they will bow down again. Daniel 12.10 Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked will do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. Isaiah 26.10 Let favor be showed to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. In the hand of uprightness will he deal unjustly. Isaiah 35.8 And an highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. Hosea 14.9 The ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressor shall fall therein. Job 27.8-10 What is the hope of the hypocrite? Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call upon God? An unsanctified man may hide his sin, and may in many things and for a season refrain from sin, but he will not be brought finally to renounce and give it a bill of divorce. Sin is too dear to him for him to be willing for that. Wickedness is sweet in his mouth, and therefore he hides it under his tongue. He spares it and forsakes it not, but keeps the steel within his mouth. Job 20:12 and 13. Herein chiefly consists the straightness of the gate and the narrowness of the way that leads to life, on account of which carnal men will not go in thereat. That it is a way of utterly denying and finally renouncing all ungodliness, and so a way of self-denial or self-renunciation. Many natural men under the means used and God's strivings with them do by their sins as Pharaoh did by his pride and covetousness. 
These he gratified by their keeping the children of Israel in bondage when God strove with him to let the people go. When God's hand pressed Pharaoh sore and he was exercised with fears of God's future wrath, he entertained some thoughts of letting the people go and promised he would do it. But from time to time he broke his promises when he saw there was respite. When God filled Egypt with thunder and lightning and the fire ran along the ground, then Pharaoh was brought to confess his sin with seeming humility and to have a great resolution to let the people go, Exodus 9:27 and 28. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said unto them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. Entreat the Lord, for it is enough that there be no more mighty thunderings and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So sinners are sometimes by thunders and lightnings and great terrors of the law brought to a seeming work of humiliation and to an appearance of parting with their sins, but are no more thoroughly brought to a disposition to dismiss them than Pharaoh was to let the people go. Pharaoh, in the struggle between his conscience and his lust, was for contriving that God might be served and he enjoy his lusts that were gratified by the slavery of the people. Moses insisted that Israel's God should be served. Pharaoh was willing to consent to that, but would have it done without his parting with the people. Go sacrifice to your God in the land, says he, Exodus 8.25. So many sinners are for contriving to serve God and enjoy their lusts, too. Moses objected against complying with Pharaoh's proposal because serving God and yet continuing in Egypt under their taskmasters did not agree together and were inconsistent. After this, Pharaoh consented to let the people go, provided they would not go far away. He was not willing to part with them finally and therefore would have them within reach. So do many hypocrites with respect to their sins. Afterwards, Pharaoh consented to let the men go if they would leave the women and children, Exodus 10, 8-10. And then after that, when God's hand was yet harder upon him, he consented that they should go, even women and children, as well as men, provided they would leave their cattle behind. But he was not willing to let them go in all that they had, Exodus 10, 24. So it is oftentimes with sinners. They are willing to part with some of their sins, but not all. They are brought to part with the more gross acts of sins, but not to part with their lusts and lesser indulgences of them. Wherefore, we must part with all our sins, little and great, and all that belongs to them, men, women, children, and cattle. They must all be let go, with their young and with their old, with their sons and with their daughters, with their flocks and with their herds. There must not be a hoof left behind, as Moses told Pharaoh with respect to the children of Israel. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 